The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. Well, we are now just heading towards 9.30 this Tuesday morning. It's good to have you with us. And I want to introduce you to our guest this morning. Her name is Zlata Filipovic. And good morning to you, Zlata. And thank you for being here. Good morning. Um, this day, uh, this very day, uh, 30 years ago, um, you woke up pretty much um, to a changed world order. Uh, one that is so resonant uh, today because of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and... I recall it well, uh, what was happening in your country at the time. I was a student and remember being horrified at the at the reality of uh, such a contemporary war, if you wish. Um, tell us what happened in your life 30 years ago today. Well, it's a sort of a, a strange thing. I mean, I'm from Sarajevo, from Bosnia, and the conflict had been going on all around different parts of former Yugoslavia. But I think when kind of like anything bad in life, you just think and ascribe it to other people. It happens to other people. Mm-hmm. So even though it was happening in Slovenia and Croatia, it was encroaching towards my city of Sarajevo. We kept thinking, well, this can happen over there, but it's not going to happen here. But the 5th of April 1992 was the day that I f- heard gunshots and sounds of explosions for the first time in my life and that was the start of the siege and I always say it was a moment kind of when my life was cut into two the period before 5th of April 1992 and BCAD you know and you were what age at that point? I was 11 11 years of age I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been but you've described before the day before and in some ways that's 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 as as dark because it was so Clear. The radio said much. I think you've said it before. It was like they were doing a weather forecast Mm. Uh, tomorrow. Everything changes. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's sort of, you know, I think it was my my aunt who had gone to the hairdressers and it was, you know, being discussed in the hairdressers, the way you discuss a snowstorm coming over that, you know, this was the war is going to start this weekend. It was also that weekend was Eid. So there was a kind of a significance to that particular weekend. A month prior, there was a morning when we all woke up and the whole city was barricaded. And then that passed. And then we thought... That was strange, but that was a blip and it's not going to happen. So when there was this idea that, you know, war is going to start tomorrow, we kind of all thought that's a very strange thing we're discussing in, you know, <laughs> hairdressing appointments, but um, it's not going to happen. And, and then it did. So it was just a very strange, slow kind of descent that into it that I think none of us believed or wanted to believe um, and kept kind of pushing away. How was life before the siege began in your world? Can you describe what your family set up and what you were doing and the ordinariness of it, if you will? Yeah, it was it was very much kind of like any kind of, you know, European childhood. So, you know, late 80s, you know, lots of MTV and, you know, Paula Abdul and Michael Jackson and Madonna. And there was a sort of, you know, it was really an idyllic, perfect childhood. You know, I went to school, music school. My parents were professionals. My dad, a lawyer, my mom, chemical engineer. We lived in the center of the city, you know, every, you know, because we had the Olympics in 1984 in the mountains, we'd go skiing to the mountains great facilities we'd go to the Croatian coast in the summer and you know all the sort of very just ordinary Quite kind ch- of middle but, class but charmed existence in some ways absolutely I mean, it was, perfect yeah. perfect you know I think you know only now I realise perfect you know and once it's taken away but you obviously you're not aware of it when it, when you are living through it but yeah for, for people who, who only know the name Sarajevo as a sort of a, a war city or a war a war name if you like what, why was Sarajevo 
besieged. Is, is that is that too silly a question or no? It was it just was to actually put a bit of context on it for us. Yeah, it's it's a sort of a perfect city for a siege in a sense. I mean, these mountains that I mentioned where they, the Olympics were held in 1984, it's a kind of a quite a mountainous region, and the city of Sarajevo is in a valley surrounded by these hills and then mountains outside. So it's a perfect city for a siege because it's a, it's inside it's encircled it's already. A yeah. Exactly. So if you put heavy artillery and snipers on around it, you can control the city. And that's essentially why it, it, it was a siege. And who was besieging it and why? So <laughs> that, those are complicated questions. Yes, but yeah, is. I mean, it's, you know, there was a sort of a, you know, the country that had existed was Yugoslavia. I, you know, different countries were starting wanting to get independence from it. The kind of the Yugoslav National Army, which was sort of the headquarters were in Belgrade, were being sent, but to kind of stop these descents, etc. And that's what had happened previously. Um, but the city itself was encircled by these extremist Serbs or troops who were kind of availing of extremely... Um, developed weapons kind of storages that the Yugoslav National Army was having. So it was a completely um, unequal kind of situation because essentially in the city you have the civilians and around it you have extremely powerful army and weapons. And do they want you out? Was it an ethnic cleanse? Was it, or was it more of a power grab? The, it, the I think it was it was possibly partly symbolic. They also wanted to to hurt the city, to hurt the civilians, to hurt the kind of you know almost their you know Sarajevo in a way represented uh, the the most beautiful thing of the mixing of all the different ethnic groups. You know, so you know when you go to Sarajevo, everyone will always tell you you know in the city there's you know in extremely close proximity you have the main synagogue, the main mosque, the main Catholic church, and the main Orthodox church. So there was something was kind of a term that was being used was herbicide. You know, they were trying to kill the city and the spirit of the city as well. Um, so it was... Um, it what was a symbol- word. Sorry, I'm, my mind's blown by that word herbicide. Yeah. Imagine trying to kill something that is ostensibly an inanimate thing. And yet it should have been the epitome of religious beauty and community and, and a win for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Gosh. So it was it was trying to kill the spirit of the city Amazing. as well as 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 well as obviously you know stopping water supplies, electricity supplies, food supplies, and you know sometimes as many as nine hundred bombs falling on a city in a day. Nine hundred bombs in one day. You're eleven years old uh, at this point. Um, Zlata, t- talk to us about you and your family realizing that this was darker than you could have ever imagined. When did you realize we are in trouble here? Uh, again, it's that sort of, you know, fluid period at the yeah. start when you're not sure. And, you know, I could sort of see it now, obviously, with Ukraine, you know, people are thinking, will yes, we leave? Will yeah. we not leave? And, yeah. and there had been many attempts where, you know, my parents and I thought, OK, maybe I'll go with our family friends to Slovenia because they're going there. Because, of course, this is only going to go on for a short period of time because this doesn't happen to people like us. This happened to other people. This yeah. happens p- people in history. Or on TV. Or in TV. Far away. Somewhere far away. Yeah. You push it. So, um there was a kind of a month in which you could still leave the city and we kind of thought about it as a family. I'm an only child. I was 11. The, the heart, You know, the idea of leaving my parents at that age or me and my mom maybe leaving, but leaving my dad, etc. So we didn't leave. And the 2nd of May, so about a month after the start of the, the, the kind of the first gunshots, the 5th of April, 2nd of May was a, a day when it really, the city really closed down, shut down. There were tanks in the city. And that's when we knew this really is, um, this is really serious. It's, it was the longest siege of a city in modern history. Um, and this is uh, longer than the siege of Leningrad, as it was called then. And yeah. it was 900 days. Um, just to put this in context for people listening this morning, that there was over 11,500 people killed 
men, women and children in the siege, many of whom you would have known. Yeah. Um, and as a child, you decided to take a diary out and, 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 and take note of that. Can I ask you why? So I started writing a diary <clears throat> about a couple of years before the war. So when I was about nine and a half. As I, one does. As sometimes. one does, yeah. yeah. Age, so yeah. I was doing it because I thought... Um, well, there were three different reasons. I'd read the diary of Anne Frank. I was always into reading and writing. So I'd read the diary of Anne Frank. I read the diary of Adrian Mole. <laughs> and I had a friend. That's uh, a kind of fast yeah, yeah. chasm between the two. But and yeah. then I, I had a friend who was about three years older than me. And because I didn't have any sisters or brothers, she was always somebody I looked up to. So Martina had a diary. So I thought I'm going to be cool like Martina and keep a diary. I'm going to be funny like Adrian Mole. And I'm going to have a friend in this diary the way Anne Frank had a friend Lovely, okay. in Kitty. And so I started writing this. It's extremely boring. It's of no interest. It was a sort of a a time capsule kind of census question of, you know, (laughs) like this day I got this, you know, these are the grades I got. This is, you know, there's a birthday party for somebody this weekend. We're going here. They're boring. You know, sometimes literally writing everything's okay in a kind of a little, you know. very sweet though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and kind of colourful things and putting stickers and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, then I continued writing and I decided, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself a little bit more to this and write a little bit more about what's happening in my life, which again was still birthday party and, you know, school, etc. And then when the war started, well, it was just natural to continue writing about what was going on mm-hmm. now. And it was a very different diary. So I was now noting how many bombs fell on the day, how many days without electricity, who was killed, who was wounded, who had left, who did we maybe get God, a letter from, you what know. What a difference from the, you know, party here, you know, got addressed there mm. to this number of bombs fall and such a swift transition mm. for a child to have to yeah, I get mean, into. I, as much as I guess, you know, the war, the, the war entered my life and all of our lives, you know, it entered the diary and it was just sort of permeated into that. And that's all I could write about. There was no school. I didn't go to school for nearly two years. So I was inside because the danger was outside. And, uh, and really what I did a lot is I was on my own and I was reading books and, and this diary was indeed the friend that that some you know I could tell things to I didn't want to burden my parents also you know about certain worries that I had they had enough to be worrying themselves so it became a friend uh, and and it became a record your mother now of a three-year-old uh, little girl and you probably have a very different head on your shoulders now than you would have um, maybe understood even in your 20s or before um can you uh, Imagine what your parents went through trying to protect you in those dirty cellars that you talk about. You said the cellars is ugly, it's dark, it's smelly. I'm quoting your diary. We listened to the pounding shells, the shooting, the thundering noise overhead. We even heard planes and I realised that this awful cellar was the only place <clears throat> excuse me, that could save our lives. Talk to me about your parents trying to mind you, an only child. Yeah, I mean, this. You know, there was that period and maybe which they could have, you know, sent me out along with some family friends to leave. They didn't. You know, I'm sure they felt worried and guilty about not doing that on the on the other hand, we did stay together and there was value in that as well in terms of, you know, families separating from each other and, you know, being torn is a really traumatic thing and something you carry. And I've seen it with friends who decided that, you know, the mom would go with the kids or the child would go on their own. Um, But there's nothing, you know, apart from kind of telling me not to go stand next close to the windows and making sure that I stay in the house. I mean, there was one morning 
um, there was a park opposite kind of the road from our apartment in Sarajevo and that's where I used to go and play and my mom had to go visit her parents and she told my dad knowing that as a daughter father kind of relationship I'd be able to sort of swindle things out of my dad more easily than her and she said she has to stay inside you make sure make sure don't let her do yeah. the thing that she does and yeah. you're going to get out she has to stay inside and you know thankfully he did make me stay because a bomb fell into that same oh, park and killed and you know a girl that was my age that was in kindergarten with me and you know various kind of young kids from that area so you know apart from telling me not to go stand next to the window make sure that I was running into the cellar and trying to kind of I guess you know still instill softness and light and life and kindness in in this but in in very practical terms there was not that much that they could do to protect me yeah, uh, you saw the picture. I don't know if you saw that picture of what they're doing with the with the young toddlers. They in Ukraine, mothers are writing their yeah. literally name and number on their back, their bare backs, mm-hmm. uh, just in case they they go missing in the middle of the war. And uh, as you know, in Ireland, we have um, mostly mothers and children. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes grandmothers are joining us now in our villages and towns around the island, um, fleeing. What what you, kind of what you just you could be talking about Ukraine the way you're talking. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable uh, for for another generation in some ways uh, it is. as you described Sarajevo. Yeah, and I was you know I was looking some at the very start of it. You know, some of those images of you know little girls with their hands stuck to the window. You know, saying goodbye to their fathers, and that is an image that was existing you know 30 years ago in Sarajevo. So there's so many parallels, and it's actually been. It's almost been kind of like a physical reaction seeing all the stuff on it, Ukraine for really? me. Yeah. In what in what way? It just feels like well, first of all, with that image of that that girl, that toddler with, you know, the, the, the date, like I'm looking at that date and that is not too far from when my own daughter is born. It's the same year. And uh but I'm you know, but it's it's also seeing this so you know, there's I feel like I'm sort of sometimes literally like punched in the stomach and like I lose a feeling in my legs. I feel it's almost like a physical reaction to this mm. because it's so incredibly familiar. It's visceral. I really know what, what it is that they're feeling. Yes. I really, really, truly know what they're feeling. It's absolutely horrific that it's happening again. And, um, and you know, just thinking of all these tragedies that are unfolding in, in all these lives. You, you you sent a tweet to a young girl who landed in Ireland called Yiva. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. Well, I just saw I was kind of scrolling through Twitter and I saw an article that um, a young girl from Ukraine was welcomed into Ireland um, and she was clutching in her hands a copy of a diary. And I just responded immediately. She's 12. I was 13 when I left Sarajevo as well, um, clutching a copy of a diary. And it just resonated so much with me. And, you know, it's 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 unfortunate. It's so sad. It's horrific. It's unfair that it's happening again. It's a horrible history repeating itself. Um, And um, uh, it resonated with you. I think the other thing I, I keep seeing and I've, I've noticed watching it, uh, the footage is older people making their way through rubble and trying to hang on to their dignity, uh, clutching, you know, a, a, a cloth to their mouths and, and crying. And I've noticed a number of Holocaust survivors. They must have been children in the Holocaust who are now being moving from Kharkiv or Kiev or whoever they may be again. You know, such displacement, such horror uh, mm. in, in their lives. And I'm just thinking about your... Your folks and how they, uh, their own dignity was challenged by, by, by the need to feed you and to water you and and themselves uh, because they ended up having to, 
what, collect rainwater and just do anything to survive. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, you know, this kind of generational thing is interesting because it's, you know, even during during the war in Sarajevo, we're thinking, okay, who's, I was thinking, who is the one, that generation that's hit the worst? Like, yeah. who, when is the worst time for this to hit you? Is it when you're this toddler whose, you know, mother is now writing in Ukraine their name and, and details on, the, on their back? Is it that because they won't know anything else? Is it sort of a teenager who's just about to kind of have a sort of, you know, start kind of an independent, that, you know, is it when you're meant to go to college? Is it, you know, my parents who were at the height of their lives and careers in their 40s? Is it my grandparents who were kind of in their late 60s, 70s? You know, instead of enjoying quiet time, my grandmother had to go and stand in queues and wait for water and they were freezing and they didn't have medication. When is the worst time? And it's it's really... It's it's heartbreaking at all times, of course, but it does, you know, that older generation really does, does, you know, I think young people are quite resilient and, um, but I think that kind of the break that happens to you and I guess the inability as a parent to do, offer what you're meant to, to your child, you know, it's, um, it's too sad. Your your attempts to leave were, were hampered at every turn, uh, Zlata. You, you, there were convoys, there was a Jewish convoy, a Slovenian convoy, an Adventist convoy, but they, none of them, could, you could never get on them or you just, just couldn't catch, your, catch, a, catch a break necessarily. But strangely, your diary was the, your ticket to freedom, mm. if, if I could be so crass as to call it that, because, um, you know, there were a handful of books published in Sarajevo during the siege um, and somebody saw your diary, saw the... Hired what what you might call a terrible beauty within them, and um, I think it was a French photographer really who who might have changed your life. Would that be fair to say? There was a there was a day basically because school stopped and I kind of didn't properly go to school for two years. Um, there were these little kind of they were called summer schools organized in local areas. Mm-hmm. And one day a teacher there asked I was in the kind of literary group, and a teacher asked, "Does anyone have keep a diary?" Because they wanted to publish a diary. Audrey Hepburn, who was UNICEF Goodwill ambassador, was meant to come to Sarajevo, and they wanted to present a diary of a child. So they collected all these diaries around the city. Audrey Hepburn never came. Nothing happened. I continued writing my diary. I gave them a different copy. I mm-hmm. kept my original kept going and um, a year later I just got the word that you know they decided they will publish it it was published on this awful green paper because you know as well as not having toilet paper and water and food and electricity like how do you publish a book in the middle of a war so it was published on this kind of green paper by a French humanitarian organization and they decided to hold a little kind of um a book promotion. It was just an event in a jazz club in Sarajevo. They had the Bosnian TV news there, but there was one Spanish guy who I have no idea how he <laughs> wandered in there, who was a journalist staying at the Holiday Inn, which is where all the journalists were staying in Sarajevo, who heard about this and was there and then went back to Holiday Inn and said, guys, there's this, you know, 13 or 12 year old. Uh, her diary's just been um, published. It's got a little translation in English. She speaks English. This is the, you know, quotation, the Anne Frank of Sarajevo, which I didn't obviously find kind of, I, I didn't like it because I was very much living at a time where the fate that, you know, happened to her could have been mine too. Um, but they started coming and all these journalists started coming to the doors and, you know, knocking and doing pieces, etc. So the story of the diary got out. But there was a French photographer and unfortunately she passed away since who became a real good family friend. Okay. And she said, you know, there's these French publishers, this, they're brilliant and you should try and if you want to do something, these are the guys. And all we wanted is at least just for me to go and be safe somewhere. At this okay. point, it was approaching the second winter of war. There was no more firewood there were no more trees to be chopped in parks for us to warm ourselves you know there was no food there was you know the danger just kept going there was no end in sight and 
it was an opportunity to ask, okay, well, if you, you know, if you maybe publish, if we give you the diary to publish, is there any chance you could just get me, just Zlata, out uh, into safety? So, and that's all we wanted. But it ended up being that my parents, both my parents and myself, left. And it was because of a French publisher and a diary. You you got out of there um, uh, with, your, with your parents. And you've been living in Ireland for how long? A long time. 26 years. It's uh, going to be 27 years this okay. year. And how did, why Ireland, I wonder? Do you... It was, we were in France for a couple of years yeah. and then we wanted to move to an English speaking, at the time, cheaper country. And uh, so <laughs> <Well> we, <laughs> so they, uh, so we moved here and I went to school and I went to university in the UK and, and yeah, just kind of the, the, you know, for a long time hoping that we'd go back, but then, you know, life, you know, it's like I got a place in Oxford University, so it was like, you're not going to, you know, let that go. You're going to go to that and then you fall in love with someone and you stay a little bit longer and then this and then you get work and somehow 26 years, 27 years accumulate in your life where you're going, really? I've been living in Ireland for 26 years? Yeah, how'd that happen? Okay. I remember as a text vividly reading Zlata's diary as a girl at the same age as she is. An incredible piece of writing and possibly one of the most impactful things I've ever read. I'm sending her love and best wishes. It must be traumatising at the moment as you've, you've outlined yourself. Um, a friend from Sarajevo had to flee with her mother, says Sean, uh, and sister eventually ending up in London. Their father had to stay behind and because of this, it was the end of the parents' marriage. They didn't see each other again and people uh, don't dream of being refugees, which is a nice way of putting it. Is there anything you can say or do for the people coming over from Ukraine now? Do, do Are you taking any part in in, in, in their story? Um, I did spend a little bit of a, a short a short period of time because in my kind of other world, I work as a documentary filmmaker and yes. I was there present when, you know, filming when a mother and two children arrived from Ukraine and were welcomed incredibly warmly and hugely generously into an Irish family's home. And uh, I mean, I was, you know, broken watching them come out from yeah. the airport and be, be you know, it is a relief and it's also then a start of a new struggle. Hard and a new for you journey. To, to try and make a documentary and not be invested. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, I mean, it comes from the from the right place. Um, so, I mean, it's a message for our Ukrainian people, but it's also a message for Irish people. You know, there's so much goodwill now. Let's not lose the goodwill. Yeah. There's so much openness and goodwill. Um, you know, in, in, in a, with time, people kind of go and... The goodwill maybe runs out, but like, let's keep keep the pressure on the goodwill and the openness and the kindness. Um, thank you for being with us this morning. It's it's such it's such an appropriate time to have you here to to to, if nothing else, um, remind us of how little we learn um, from from history. Sadly, but um, thank you for that. And your diary will will be there forever for people to to read and, and learn from, hopefully yeah. in some shape or form. So I wish you and your family every happiness. Uh, Zlata, thanks for being with us this morning. That says uh, Zlata Filipovic joining us uh, live in studio this Tuesday morning. Back shortly.